If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the uh, bottom of the seat in front of you. And you could open up to page 837 where you'll find 2 Thessalonians 1. It's page 837, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, recently, our family began reading the novel Elsie Dinsmore, written by Martha, Martha Finley. And it's a book about a girl in the 1800s. She's about nine years old, and she already has a fervent faith in Jesus Christ, and she tries to live it out in some very trying circumstances. Elsie's mother has died. She's never met her father, at least at the beginning of the story. He's off in Europe somewhere. He's been there for years. And so she lives with her father's parents And they don't like her very much because they didn't like her mother. They weren't happy that her father married her mother. They didn't approve of that marriage. And they're busy trying to raise a family of their own. And because Elsie's father had been the oldest, Elsie's no older than some of what are her uncles and aunts, some of her grandparents' children who are still in the house. So she's part of that crew. And hardly anyone in the house likes Elsie. They despise her faith her honesty, her obedience, her kindness and forgiveness to those who continually harass her. It's a wealthy house, and the younger children are taught by a governess, and she despises Elsie most of all, and she looks for ways to make Elsie's life miserable. On one occasion during school time, the kids are trying to finish up their work because they're supposed to go to the fair that afternoon, and Elsie has been looking forward, as the other kids have, for weeks to going to the fair. Well, the governess leaves the room, and Arthur, who's a few years older than Elsie and who likes to pick on Elsie, starts pulling her hair while she's trying to do her math and starts bumping her elbow while she's trying to do her penmanship and starts talking to her while she's trying to memorize her history assignment. And Elsie begs him to stop. She begs him to the point of tears because she sees what's coming, but but he doesn't care. And, And when the teacher returns and it's time to check over the kid's work, Elsie gets a huge scolding, and the teacher will make no excuse, will take no excuses from Elsie, and so she has to stay and redo all her work while the other kids go to the fair. And another one of the girls who has a strong sense of justice protests and tries tries to explain to the governess what happened, but the governess cuts her off and says, don't tell me how to run my classroom. Another time, Elsie has made a fast friend with a young Christian lady who came to board with the family for a number of months. And Elsie loved her new sister in Christ so much that that when it got close to the time for this young lady to leave, Elsie longed to give her a gift to remember her by. And and so she knit her a purse, and it was hours of, of loving work as she worked on this beautiful little purse for her friend. And she's just putting the finishing touches on it when another child, Anna, who's Elsie's age, comes into her room and sees the purse and decides that she wants it. And Elsie says, it's a going away gift. I can't give it to you. But Anna insists... And and so Elsie tries to placate her. She says, I promise I'll make you another purse just like this soon. And Anna says, no, I want that purse. And Elsie says, no. And so Anna goes running from the room. Well, a couple minutes later, Anna comes back still crying with Anna's mother, Elsie's grandmother. And this woman scolds Elsie for upsetting Anna and makes Elsie give Anna the purse. Can you believe it? And on and on it goes like this for Elsie. It amounts to abuse. 
And as you read this story about this sweet Christian girl who, who tries her best to do what's right and, and is met with cruelty and injustice at every turn, you just long for someone, someone strong, someone authoritative to step into this house, to step into Elsie's life and make things right for her. We have within us an, an innate sense for justice. We long for wrongs to be made right, don't we? We, we long for inequities to be redressed and, and for victims to be vindicated. And it's to that topic to which we now turn in the book of Second Thessalonians. Last week we finished First Thessalonians, the letter of encouragement that Paul had written to the new Christians in Thessalonica, the, the Macedonian city. And although there's some disagreement among scholars, most believe that 2 Thessalonians was written not too many months after 1 Thessalonians. That Timothy had brought the letter of 1 Thessalonians to the Thessalonians. He'd spent a little time with them. And then he returned to Paul with a a follow-up report about um, how that first letter had been received and what had been going on now in the church And Paul got that report, and in response, he wrote the letter of 2 Thessalonians to follow up the first letter and what had been happening since. And as we begin reading 2 Thessalonians now, it becomes clear that the persecution in Thessalonica, which we read about in 1 Thessalonians, has not only continued, but it's intensified. The Thessalonians are suffering acutely for their new faith in Jesus Christ, and this has been now going on for a number of months. And at least part of the reason for these persecutions is given to us in Acts 17, which is uh, where um, we read the story about how Paul had originally started this church in Thessalonica. And in verses 6 to 7 of Acts 17, we read that Paul and his companions and, and the new believers in Thessalonica are being accused of causing trouble all over the Roman Empire and defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. In other words, the Thessalonians are being persecuted, at least in part, because in giving their allegiance to Jesus, they are failing to give proper allegiance to Caesar in the eyes of the empire. We don't know the details of what forms these persecutions took or what sufferings the Thessalonians endured. Maybe they lost long-lost friends when they were kicked out of the synagogues there in Thessalonica. Maybe they lost jobs or businesses being shunned and kicked out of the trade guilds, which were the center of Roman society at that time. Maybe they were thrown in prison. Maybe they were fined. Maybe they were even beaten and killed. That's what they got for living or forgiving their lives over to Jesus. For trying to worship the true God as best as they knew how. They were just trying to do what was right. And what did they get for it? Only trouble. And the reason that these persecutions even began, according to Acts 17.5, was that some of the Jews there in Thessalonica had gotten jealous that Paul was winning people over to Jesus and they had rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and had started a riot to cause trouble to Paul. Talk about injustice. So what if this was you being persecuted? How would you respond? Would you say, you know, I thought Christianity sounded pretty cool and, and that I'd like to give it a try, but I'm not into it that much. I mean, it's not working out for me anymore. 
So I'm just kind of kind of slip back into my old life. Or would you hang in there but but whine and complain the whole way? You know, poor me, poor us. This isn't fair. Why is God letting this happen to us? It's pity party time. Well, the Thessalonians don't seem to be falling into either of these traps. Rather, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, their faith is growing more and more. And their love for each other is increasing. These folks are thriving spiritually amidst their intense suffering. Remember back at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians several weeks ago, I told you a story about my garden and how we went on vacation and we came back and and the tomato plants we had planted were as tall as I was and they were just bulging with fruit. Well, that's how the Thessalonians are growing. They're flourishing for Jesus, even though those around them are giving them nothing but trouble for it. And Paul says... In response to this, so we thank God for you, verse 3. And we brag about you to all the other churches, verse 4. He's not bragging, he's not giving thanks because the Thessalonians themselves deserve a huge pat on the back, but rather because it's God's grace, it's, it's God's work, it's God's power that has been bringing about these good things in the Thessalonians. And and so we can all marvel at at God and we can respond, wow, cool, yay, God. That's what Paul's saying here. But Paul does one more thing in verse 5 in response to the Thessalonians' flourishing faith. He he points to the Thessalonians and he says in verse 5, you are evidence that God's judgment is right. Now how can that be? How can that be? When, when the Thessalonian believers or Elsie or Dinsmore or, or one of us here at CBC does what's right and, and we honor God and, and we get unjustly persecuted or penalized for it, how is that evidence that God's judgment is right? It seems the opposite, right? If they're being good, then good things should happen to them, not bad things if God's judgment is right. Well, Paul replies, I think, no doubt things look unfair now. But if you want to see that God's judgment is right, just look a little bit further into the future. Verse 3, if we keep reading, he says, And as a result, you Thessalonians will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Paul isn't claiming that things have been made right yet. He's not suggesting that God's justice has been done yet. He's just saying that when it is done, God will do it right, justly, fairly. Paul goes on in verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well, Paul adds hopefully, because he's being persecuted too with Timothy and Silas. So let me summarize Paul's argument here. We may experience profound suffering and profound injustice in the world now. But the day is coming, Paul's saying, when God will come to our rescue and set all things right. 
He will give rest and relief and blessing to the righteous and to the innocent. And he will pay back the guilty what they deserve with what they deserve. And Paul adds, the fact that the Thessalonians are being faithful and are growing in the midst of the persecutions they're enduring now is actually evidence that God's judgment will be just. Now let me explain. Listen carefully. I think Paul is reflecting on the fact that when we're unjustly persecuted, we have a few choices. We can stay on our game and we can keep doing what's right. We can keep a good attitude. We can keep growing in love for other people, even blessing those who persecute us. Or, on the other hand, we can get grouchy and bitter. We can wallow in the injustice of our situation. We can even fight back against those persecuting us, as some Christians do today. You hear about the the wars in Africa or Indonesia between Christian villages and Muslim villages. And as the details come in, things get really murky. You're not clear after a while who started it or who provoked it and what the motives of all those involved are and whether the Christians are, in fact, just culturally Christian, whether they're being persecuted because of their faith or because they've actually been oppressing the other villages, and that's why they're being persecuted. And you wonder, where does the truth lie? And what does justice look like in this situation? Do these so-called Christians deserve to be vindicated by God? Or are they the oppressed? Or are they the oppressor? You're not really sure. But Paul is saying in the case of the Thessalonians, their lives are so loving, so faithful, so spiritually vital that there is no question who God should vindicate. They are evidence that God's judgment is right. When it comes, their lives are so admirable that they make the rightness of God's justice crystal clear when you look at both sides and how both sides are reacting. Are you following me? Well, we live in a world where there's plenty of injustice. There are many, many real Elsie Dinsmores in the world. And even though we may not be persecuted like the Thessalonians were, there are other ways that Injustice comes and finds us. But God's people have always maintained in in the face of evidence to the contrary that nevertheless, God is just. And so he will not let injustice go on forever. One day he will return and he will make all things right. And on that day, his justice will be perfectly fair and perfectly appropriate. And so when God's people suffer, they suffer with hope. And they long for the day when God's judgment will come. Now, you know, many Western Christians today are squeamish about God's judgment. We want God to be nice. We We love God's grace. We we love his mercy, but we're kind of embarrassed about God's judgment. And I think it's because we seldom suffer injustice ourselves. It's not our malnourished children who are being made to work 16 hours a day in sweatshops in subhuman conditions. It's not our young daughters being abducted and trafficked as prostitutes. It's not our 
parents or spouses being dragged off by the secret police in the middle of the night. It's not our coffee crops that we've borrowed and mortgaged and worked our fingers to the bone to produce, only to be told at harvest time that global markets have changed and it won't even pay to bring the crops to market. Dump them in the ocean. Such people long for justice. They cry out for God's judgment. And scripture tells us that their cry reaches God's ears. And justice will be done for them. Well, some of us have experienced some pretty terrible things, haven't we? And Jesus teaches us that we're to return evil for good. And we're to forgive those. The other way around. You you knew what I meant. (laughs) To return good for evil. (laughs) You're you're all awake. That's great. (laughs) We're to forgive those who have wronged us. Yet, Jesus also invites us to long for God's justice. When God pays back the wicked what they deserve. Romans 12, 12:19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so those who have been persecuted, those who suffer, aren't squeamish about God's judgment. No, they long for that day when when God sets things right. In Revelation, we read about the souls of those who have given their lives under the altar saying, How long, Lord, until you come and, and you vindicate us, until you bring justice on earth? And those who are persecuted have echoed that prayer ever since. And so Paul says to the suffering Thessalonians, don't worry, God is a God of justice and that day is coming. In the meantime, get back to thriving spiritually. Let your love abound more and more. Let your faithfulness and your perseverance glow or grow and flourish. And then Paul goes on in the second half of verse 7 and he describes what that day is will be like. He describes it to encourage the Thessalonians. He says, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Jesus, he's the one who God has appointed to bring about justice. Jesus will come with blazing fire, with his powerful angels. In other words, there will be no contest. There will be no standing against him. And he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, two comments here. First, the Greek word translated punish here doesn't refer to an arbitrary, just emotionally vengeful punishment, but rather to the meeting out of a penalty that's fitting to the crime. Jesus will give those he punishes exactly the penalty they deserve. Second, notice who it is who deserves God's punishment, according to Paul here. He says it's those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel, the good news about Jesus. First, it's those who do not know God. The Bible teaches that to not know God is a punishable offense. Romans 1.18 
Paul writes there, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Why is ignorance of God a punishable offense? Because if we don't know God, it, it isn't because he hasn't made himself known. It's rather because whether we admit it to ourselves or not, we, we didn't really want to know him. It's kind of like paying for your kids to go to college. Let me explain. Ann and I, to our shame, have never calculated how much money we need to save every year to put our fourth children through four years of college. Why? Well, one reason is because who knows how much financial aid we'll qualify for. So we do save something, but it's hard to plan exactly. But the other reason that we haven't run the numbers is because we're just plain afraid to look at the results, right? <laughs> And likewise, Scripture says, if people don't know God, it isn't because who he is is that hard to figure out. It's rather because people are afraid to look. They'd rather not know. But ignorance is no excuse, God's word teaches. Pleading ignorance isn't going to persuade a college finance officer to let our kids go to school for whatever we've scraped together over the years. And likewise, pleading ignorance isn't going to persuade God to overlook the godless lives that people have lived. He expects us to know better because it's all there for us to discover if we want to know. So it's those who do not know God. Second, it's not only not knowing God that's a punishable offense, but it's also not obeying the gospel about Jesus when you've heard it. God has extended his love to the world. He's given his only son as an offer of, of sacrificial grace and love to people who didn't deserve it. He's also given us Jesus as, as a good king to, to restore our lives, to heal this broken world. And when we hear that good news and we reject it, we are guilty of profound ingratitude toward God. And so we, in effect, choose the alternative. And God honors our choice. Verse 9. Such people will be punished, Paul says, or, or better again, such people will receive the appropriate penalty. And what is the appropriate penalty? Well, literally, the text here reads... Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Now the NIV translation, which I'm looking at here, um, has that they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. They add and shut out because they're just trying to smooth out Paul's choppy Greek. But literally Paul says, those who don't know God, who don't obey the gospel will receive the penalty of everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. What is everlasting destruction? 
It's being away from the presence of the Lord. Notice how the penalty is appropriate to the crime. In this life, do we choose to draw close to Jesus? Through whom God has made himself known to us? Well then, we will be in Jesus' presence forever, if that's what we choose. On the other hand, in this life, do we choose not to know God, not to obey the good news about Jesus? Well then, we will be ever away from the presence of the Lord. The judgment of God is fair because it is God just confirming and solidifying the choices that we're already making. But, Paul warns, the problem for those who don't want God in their lives is that to be cut off from the presence of Jesus is, in fact, eternal destruction. Why? Well, because whether we realize it or not, the Lord is our source of life and joy. He puts the song on our lips. He puts food on our plates. He lights up our darkness. He puts breath in our lungs. He puts love in our hearts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God above, the book of James tells us. And this is true whether you acknowledge it or not. God is gracious to everyone, whether they know him and acknowledge him or not. And so to be shut off from all of this is nothing less than everlasting destruction. You know, Alanis Morissette was on to something in her song, Isn't It Ironic? Do you remember that song? Some of you? Yeah? Younger people are nodding. The older people are looking. (laughs) By the way, English teachers hate that song because all the things that the song describes aren't, in fact, examples of irony at all. But they do give us a little glimpse into what God's judgment will be like for those who have chosen not to know him in this life and discover to their horror in the next life that life without him is everlasting destruction. She writes, An old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. It's like a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon two minutes too late. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. Who would have thought it? It figures. Now, I don't know if those shut out from the Lord's presence will be able to see what they're missing or what God's people are enjoying, but if they can, it will be a a profound and devastating disappointment. As they see God's people enjoying the life of of contentment and and joy and love, which has now slipped through their fingers, finally and forever. Talk about profound desolation. Well, Paul goes on to describe what it is that the Thessalonians will enjoy on that day. Verse 9 the Lord's presence and the majesty of his power. Verse 10, 
Jesus being glorified in his holy people and marveled at among all those who have believed. Verse 12, Jesus' name being glorified in us and us in him. This is a picture of incredible celebration when you unpack all the religious language. It's a picture of Jesus celebrating us and delighting in us and we celebrating and delighting in him. The closest that I have come to seeing or or experiencing this is at a wedding, which is maybe why scripture talks about uh, Jesus' return in, in, in terms of a wedding. The stately groom is up front He's, he's straining to see the back of the church, to, to see his radiant bride come down that aisle. And, and she comes down beaming, looking into his eyes. They're delighting in one another. They're, they're celebrating one another. And so Paul says, will we marvel at Christ when he comes to us, if we believe? Wow, Jesus You are even way better than I knew. In fact, I thought I knew you, but I had no clue. Whoa. And he likewise will be glorified in us. He'll say, look at them. They're so beautiful. I love them so much. I gave my life for them, and now I get to be with them forever. Let the party begin. And yet there's even more, Paul says, Jesus and his name will be glorified in us. Now, what does that mean? Well, our author Brennan Manning writes that in, in Nathaniel Hawthorne's favorite or famous short story, The Face on the Mountain, a young boy stares at a face carved in granite, and he regularly asks tourists in town if they know the identity of the face on the mountain. No one does. Into manhood and midlife and old age, this boy, grown up now, continues to gaze on the face every opportunity until one day a tourist passes through and exclaims to the once young boy who's now a weather-beaten old man, you are the face on the mountain. You have become the face on the mountain. That's what Paul's getting at here, that Jesus will be glorified in us as we keep gazing at the face at the life, at the person of Jesus as we meditate and and read the Gospels over and over again, every chance we get. And and so we grow in faith and, and we grow in love. We come to resemble the one on whose face we gaze. His glory, his name comes to be more and more in us. And so on that day, God will say, wow, You know, I can see my son in you. You've come to look a lot like him. I'm proud of you. I love you. You're beautiful. You're awesome. What a reward. But in the meantime, Paul assures us, looking now at 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. That's because this present world is flowing in opposition to God. And and to go against that flow is to encounter friction. And so we have to honestly ask ourselves the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? 
Paul counsels us not to answer that question just in terms of today or tomorrow or next year, but to look longer term. An Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walke, illustrates this really well in a lecture that I once heard him give, and I'll conclude with this. He says, think about a bull out in a field. Now, you might think, look at him. He's, he's free to do what he wants. He's, he's free to eat all he wants. He has no cares. He can just enjoy life. But before you're tempted to envy him, Take time to remember where he's headed. He's headed to the slaughterhouse. Ben Walkie recounts a story about a man who had an angel visit him, and, and the angel offered him one wish, anything he wanted. And the man thought quickly, and then he said, I know, give me a copy of the newspaper dated one year from today. And the angel produced it for him, and, and he opened up to the stocks page. And he started looking down at it, and he started gloating about all the money he was going to make until his eye kind of glanced across the page to the obituary column. And to his horror, he saw his face and his name printed there. And suddenly he lost all interest in the stocks. We too need a long-term perspective on things, and, and Paul gives it to us here. And I want to challenge us this morning to live in light of this long-term perspective because the stakes couldn't be higher. Let's pray. And if the Spirit has been speaking to you this morning and giving you clarity giving you perspective about your priorities, your attitudes, your behaviors, in light of the longer view, as I pray, I, I want to invite you, if you want to, to stand up, and I'll pray this prayer over you. The prayer I'm going to pray is um, verses 11 and 12 of this chapter where Paul prays for the Thessalonians. So, Stand if you'd like me to pray this over you. God, I pray that our God may count these folks worthy of his calling, of your calling, God. And that by your power, that you may fulfill every good purpose of theirs and every act that's prompted by their faith. And we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in them and that they may be glorified in Jesus according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ.